chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 29. You know, last week as we were looking in chapter 1, we saw there pretty clearly that uh, there was a group of people there in Capernaum that were amazed and even shocked and even disturbed uh, by what they heard from Jesus preaching, what they saw as Jesus cast a demon out of a man right there on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. Now, Mark's purpose for recording these events was to demonstrate to you and I very clearly uh, that Jesus has absolute authority over all man, over all men, uh, women, children, everyone who's ever lived, and he has absolute authority over their enemies, Satan and the demons. Now, in looking at that authority, it's important for us not to walk away and begin to picture Jesus as an authoritarian, okay? Like in the strictest sense. And what, what I mean by that is that's just not how bi- the, the Bible pictures Christ. It doesn't picture Jesus as this bully who is trying to get his way and push people out of the way and flex his muscles and trying to intimidate people and keep them in fear. That's just not the picture of Jesus that the Bible provides for us. The Bible does give us a picture of his absolute authority, but it also gives us a picture of Jesus in his absolute compassion for us. Now, that's kind of a weird mixture, isn't it? It's almost hard for us to be able to reconcile those two things together, to think of Jesus as as absolutely sovereignly uh, authoritative and at the same time uh, sovereignly um, compassionate with us. Those two things just don't seem to mix all that much. But yet, that's how the Bible really pictures Christ. He pictures him both as the lion and the lamb. It pictures as a full picture of him being authoritatively compassionate. And again, that's a strange kind of idea, but that's how we see Jesus in this particular passage. We really focused on his authority last week. And I think after talking with many people this last week and counseling with them, I think God's timing is perfect because this week we're going to focus more on the compassionate aspect of Jesus' character, which I think is going to be a tremendous blessing uh, for some who are struggling uh, this morning. And so let's, let's focus on this compassionate uh, Jesus, or the compassionate Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. And what I want to draw your attention to first is the disciples' need for compassion. Every disciple of Jesus Christ is in consistent, constant need of Christ the Savior's compassion. And we see that here in beginning in verse 29, it says, And immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, what, John, what Mark is doing is he's just continuing his record of this one day in the life of Jesus there in Capernaum. It's a Sabbath day. And he's already been recording everything that's been going on. It began with Jesus' teaching, continued with his casting out of a demon. Now it's continuing on through verse 29. This is all the same Sabbath day, all this in the life of Jesus. And so here we find Jesus along with Simon, Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, James, and John. These are the four disciples that Jesus, by his divine grace, called out to, to follow him. And we find them leaving the synagogue and making their way to uh, Peter's house, Peter and Andrew's house. Now, if you have the opportunity to go to um, Capernaum, you'd find that this is not a very long uh, walk at all. In fact, it's just a couple hundred yards from the entrance of the synagogue to where they believe that 
Peter and Andrew's house actually was. And so they come, and you can imagine, if you will, their excitement, all that they've seen, all that they've heard. They're seeing the power of God. And then they get back home, and what happens? They, they run into some trouble. They are faced immediately with some difficulties. Notice what the Word of God says in verse 30. Now, Simon's mother-in-law... All right, there's the problem. All right? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. My mother-in-law's here. That's not a problem. Uh, there's, there's the problem. All right, that's not the problem. The mother-in-law's not the problem. It says, now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Okay? Now, so they get there, everything exciting. Now they're kind of back to reality. I love the fact that Mark, moved by the Holy Spirit, included this particular detail for you and me. Why? Because we need it. It reminds us that Jesus calls ordinary, everyday people like you and I to follow him. People with jobs, people with homes, people with families, people with mother-in-laws, right? People with mother-in-laws with, 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 with headaches, all right? People with mother-in-laws who are headaches, not my mother-in-law. She's a blessing, all right? I didn't know she was going to be here today, so I'm ad-libbing as I go. No, I'm just joking. She's a tremendous blessing. But they were normal, everyday people. And I think it's important for us to remember this. Because I think, at least in the Word of God, we begin to think that these guys lived in like some kind of gigantic um, um, Jesus vacuum. You understand what I mean? Nothing else existed except for them and Jesus. There was no difficulties. There were no problems. There were no responsibilities. It was just them and Jesus. And so, therefore, they had some kind of advantage on us to really be able to live out this really committed, faithful life unto Christ, a life that you and I just have a hard time doing because we live in the real world, right? We live in the real world where we face, we're faced with difficulties and problems and responsibilities every single day, things that the disciples had nothing to do with. I mean, haven't we said or at least thought from time to time, somewhere in your Christian life, you know, if I didn't have this job, If I just didn't have this demanding job working all of these hours, I would just be a lot better and more faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought something like that? Or maybe you're going through some difficulties and you have debt in your life and you think to yourself, man, if I could just get out of this debt, man, I would just be so much more focused on Jesus if if this would just be eradicated. Or maybe you're in a relationship and you're in, maybe it's your marriage or whatever it ought to be, and you're in that marriage and relationship and you're thinking, God, Every minute of every day is thought and the life is being sucked out of me in this particular relationship. If I could just get out from underneath this relationship, then I could truly follow Jesus. I could truly follow him. But that's not not at all what the Bible talks about really living the Christian life. What's the problem with that kind of thinking? The problem is it ultimately says the only way to truly follow Jesus and be faithfully committed to him is if all the other problems, difficulties, and responsibilities in life are taken away. You know what I call that? I call that youth camp theology, all right? And and what I mean by that is I've done a lot of camps, all right? With Dan, I think I've done 10 or 11 just with, uh, with, with him. And this is pretty consistent with every youth camp. You have to beat the kids to get there. They finally get there, and then they love it right? And then about Tuesday, Wednesday, you begin to see God kind of change them and transform them. And then what they do is they know that Thursday and Friday are coming, and then they begin to panic. Isn't this right? They begin to panic because they say, no, we don't want to go home. I don't want to go back to school. I don't want to go back to work. I don't want to go back to my friends because here everything's cool. Jesus and I are, 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 are just communing together, and this is awesome. But I don't want to go back. And what they're saying is, 
They can't live for Christ in the same capacity um, as they do at camp back home or back in their schools, back in real life. So that's not exactly at all what the disciples went through. They lived their Christian life in the real world, not in some fantasy world. With all the problems and all the difficulties and all the surprises of life and all, all, all these different responsibilities, they still had each and every one of those particular things. What was the difference, though, between them and us? I think one of the major differences was that we, we tend to compartmentalize our life and they don't. Um, we kind of look at life like this. I've got my occupation. I've got my home. I've got other responsibilities. And then we have Jesus and we've got the church, right? And the problem with that kind of thinking and looking at your life that way is that what you'll do is you'll put all of your eggs, all of your energy, all of your focus into one of those categories to try to kind of fix it or to maintain it or whatever it is, and it leaves no energy and no focus for anything else, including one of those categories that you call Jesus, right? I've just got nothing left for him anymore. I I don't have time to pray now today because I have too much going on. Don't have time to be in his word. Don't have time to serve him because I'm doing work. Well, that's not how the disciples view their life. They didn't view Jesus as a category. They viewed him as king and authority over all categories, right? It wasn't just home and work and family. It was, it was, it was Jesus of and in family. It was Jesus of and in work and Jesus of and in problems and all of these difficulties. That's how they ultimately looked at it. And, and, and the evidence that they looked at it that way is found in the disciples' request for compassion. Notice the very next verse, the Bible says, and immediately they told him about her. Okay, now let me tell you how this would kind of work with you and I. Excited at church with Jesus, Jesus coming home to eat with us. We sit down, Jesus sit right here. Somebody comes up and says, listen, we've got to talk in the other room. Come here just for a second. We get up and go, Jesus, would you excuse us just for a second? We've got to, uh, we'll, we'll be right back, right? And so we kind of walk over, we open up the door. Have you guys had this, had company over? This has kind of happened. You get in the next room, your wife or whoever it is, and go, man, we've got a problem. Well, what is it? Well, listen, this is not the time or the place to be dealing with this. We've got company here. We've got Jesus here. But you don't understand. My mother, my mother is sick again. Your mother-in-law is sick again. Well, she picked a fine time to go and have a headache right now, doesn't she? You know, looking at her. Man, all you've done is cause problems in my life. Now, listen, do you understand what's going on? Jesus called me to be his disciple. We're going places, man. And now this is just going to set us back. Andrew, would you please go out? apologize to Jesus and just tell him, listen, this discipleship thing is going to have to go on hold. Jesus, listen, we'll call you tomorrow. We'll see you next week, uh, you know, in the synagogue at, at Sabbath. But we've got some responsibilities we have to take, uh, take care of right now. This whole discipleship thing is going to have to be postponed. Try that. But that's not what they do. Because they don't compartmentalize their life. Instead, they sit there and immediately, the Bible says, immediately they told him about her. Hey, Jesus, we don't want this to be apart from you. We want you to be a part of this. Jesus was, they didn't call on Jesus as their last ditch effort. He was their first priority. And the reason they know that is because if Jesus is, is sovereignly in control and the authority over all things that they just saw in the synagogue, then guess what? He's sovereignly in control over their problems and difficulties of life. They don't want him outside and waiting for them. They want to invite him in to the difficulty where they are. 
It's not, hey, Jesus, we'll get to you and we'll serve you at some point. Jesus, I need you now. We're following you, but we've got some difficulties. Jesus, will you even help me in the midst of this? Now, that's the big question. It's one thing to call out for Jesus' compassion and request it. The other is, will Jesus be willing to be able to come along and actually be able to help? Because let's stop and think about it. Jesus is doing a lot of big things. You guys with me? Um, The Bible tells us in the Old Testament that he is guiding and directing the hearts of kings and world leaders to bring about his ultimate sovereign will upon earth. How many think that's pretty big? You? Me? Yeah, pretty big stuff, okay? The Bible also says in Romans 8, 28, that he's doing all things at all times, everywhere, all to bring about his perfect purpose and according to his perfect will. That, that's pretty big. Everything at all times, everywhere. That's a lot, right? I can't do anything right in one place at some of the time. You, you with me? Colossians tells us in 117 that Jesus, who has created all things, is also holding all things together, which means he's keeping the, the, uh, the earth to rotate and, you know, around the sun. He's keeping it on the appropriate axis. He's keeping your body and all its molecule, molecules and atoms from spinning out and being destroyed and flying out into the universe. He's holding all things together. Here's my point. Jesus is doing some pretty big and pretty important things. The question for us is, is Jesus concerned with what we might view as kind of maybe a smaller thing, something personal in our life. And, and I think I make this mistake, and let me repent of this and, 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 and ask you for your forgiveness. I preach a lot about the glory of God and the goodness of God and, and the magnificence of God and the, the grandeur of God and what he's doing through in Ethiopia and through the world and how he's drawing and he's calling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I'm trying to give you a picture of a big Christ, but I never want you to ever think in any way, shape, or form that that Jesus, Colossians 1.17, that is holding all things together is not the same Christ and God that knows the number of every hair on your head. He's the God of the big, but he's your God and he's, he, he loves you, and he's concerned with what's happening with you at this very moment and, and at this very time. And, and, and you say, well, is that what the Scriptures say, or are you just making that up? Well, I believe it's what the Scriptures say. It's not like Jesus just comes out and says, it says, listen to me, I care about the little things. Remember, Mark's emphasis is not on what Jesus says. He knows that words can be cheap, not Jesus' words, but a lot of people say a lot of things. His emphasis is on the actions of Jesus Christ. And Jesus demonstrates that he's concerned about those small things by what he does right here in in, in the scriptures in verse 31. He says, and he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her. I love that he took her by the hand. Gentleness, compassion, just lifting her up and healing her right there on the spot. What a compassionate Jesus we serve. Now, what's interesting there, and this is where we get boring because we talk about verb tenses and everything, but in this, te- this text, it's very important. In all texts, it's actually important. He's actually, that verb te- phrase that he uses that he lifted up is actually in the imperfect tense, which means this, is that it's being spoken as though it's happening right then and there. But here's the crazy thing. When he's writing this, he's writing it many, many years after these events actually happened. 
In fact, Mark wasn't even there when these events happened. He wasn't one of the disciples, one of the apostles. He's actually recording this, and his primary source is Peter. And Peter, at this particular moment, is, is, is kind of like reflecting back. And as he's, he's sharing this with Mark, and as he's writing it all out, he's sitting there, and, and it's almost like that day, he remembers it that day as he did many years before. He sits there, and he says, and then Jesus stood up, and he reached out his hand, and he took her hand, and he lifted her up. And she was healed, and her fever went away. It never left him. You know, I think it's interesting because as we look through the Gospels, Jesus is healing quite a few people. But if you've noticed, he, always, he often heals in different ways. Did you, did you notice that? Sometimes he just speaks healing and it's done. Sometimes he's, he's present with that person. He tells them be clean and they're clean and they're healed. It's just an amazing thing. Other times he speaks it and guess what? He's not even there. The person is like somewhere else and they're ultimately healed. Sometimes it's very complex, his healing. Sometimes it's through a word. Sometimes he's, he lays his hands on them. Sometimes they're not there. Sometimes they are. Sometimes he even takes clay and he, and he works them and he spits in it and he makes, some, he makes some, or he takes some dust, spits in it, makes some clay, and then he wipes it on the eyes of somebody and then he has them wash it off and then he does it again. And it's this very complicated thing. What's going on with all this? Why does Jesus heal, but he seems to heal in all these different ways? I think Kent Hughes says it best. He says, Jesus heals in different ways. There are different ways in which he healed, um, he healed, and it rested in the mental and moral condition of the people themselves and what he wanted to communicate to them. In other words, Jesus was not just healing their bodies. He was trying to draw apart and give them something that was nourishing to their soul that would draw their faith and create a greater faith in them towards the person of Jesus Christ. And so here, what we see is that he's reaching out to touch, and in the mind and in the remembrance of Peter, what he remembers from this event is that Jesus Christ does care and extends compassion to his disciples, even in those everyday things of life. And that's what he's seeing here, and that's the compassion that Jesus responds with. And, and, and to me, I don't know about you, but that, that's incredible encouragement to me. And, and notice, after he touches her, notice the response to Jesus' compassion. Notice this, and she began to serve him. Now, both feminists and male chauvinists have misinterpreted this passage, okay? The feminist has said this, just like a man, always wanting something, doesn't want to do anything unless he's got to get something in return. There's Jesus. The only reason he ends up healing and the only reason the guys are really worried about the mother-in-law at all is because it's Sunday or Saturday afternoon after church and they want some food. Somebody's got to cook. And the cook is sick. We'll heal him so we can keep talking and she can come and serve, all right? Then there's those, the male chauvinists that have used this passage. And the way they've looked at it is they see this as evidence for regulating women in a serving capacity. Hey, look, see, women ought to serve, men ought to be served. That's the way that life should be. And if that's how you think in either one of those extremes, I just simply say to you, get a life. Just get a life, all right? It's not what the Word of God is teaching there. There's nothing malicious here. There's nothing self-centered happening here. There's nothing self-centered here. There's nothing degrading here that's happening. 
what we find here is that this same word for serving is the same word we saw back in chapter 1 and verse 13, which described the angels serving Jesus after the temptation in the wilderness. It's the same word for serving that we see in John chapter 10 and verse 45, one of the main passages in all of, of the book of Mark where Jesus says the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what is this? What does it mean? One commentator says this, this is the telltale sign of everyone who has truly received the healing touch of Jesus Christ. It's a response of worship. This is what we do. She is not working. Please get this. Before we move on, get this. Jesus will not be used. If you are here today because you're having difficulties in your life and you're thinking that if you show up at the early service on Sunday morning and deny yourself sleep and deny yourself the boat and anything else you want to do on Saturday because you have a problem in your life and this somehow will get you in with Jesus and with God because of your goodness and because of what you're doing and so now you'll have, uh, you'll have Jesus' ear to do what you want him to do, you're wasting your time. Jesus will not be used by you. But she is not serving because she, she wants his compassion. She's serving because she's received his compassion. She's not working for his grace. She's working from his grace. You see that? And that's how you and I and every believer who's truly been touched by his mercy and grace that knows that we're unworthy of his compassion towards us, we serve him. Why? Not because we want more from him, because we've received all from him. See that? Now, the scriptures continue through here, and what we see here is, and we've got to ask, we see her thanksgiving, but here's the question that immediately comes to mind when I begin to read this, and I begin to study this, and I begin to think of you as a congregation. Here's the question that's going to come up, Jesus. He does it for her, but will he do it for me? All right? And see, that's how some of you think. Some of you, when we talk about God's sovereignty and his goodness and the depth of his grace to forgive you of every sin, there's some of you that will sit there and you will think, but not my sin. My sin's too sinful. My sin's too deep. My sin's too awful. I've done it too many times. And you're always the exception to the rule. He says, come to me. I'll forgive you. I'll extend my grace. I'll give you my compassion. But somehow you are outside of his category and outside of his reach. Are you with me? And you think the same thing with his compassion. That here he is reaching out and wanting to touch, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but, but, but that's different, Brother Mike. Look, this is, this is Peter, man. He's one of the 12, and he was not only one of the 12, but he was in one of the inner circle of the three. Jesus and he, man, they're, they're, they're together. They're good friends. He's got an inside track to him. What about the rest of us? Well, I think that Mark lets us know what happens with the rest of us who are seeking compassion from the Savior. The Bible says in verse 32, that evening, uh, and we see the breath of Jesus' com uh, compassion here, that evening at sundown they brought him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathering together at the door. Now, remember, everything, all of this happening in one Sabbath day. Now, you can imagine when Jesus preached and blew everybody out of the water, and when, this, when he cast this demon out, that that word spread like wildfire. Don't you think? Through Capernaum. Okay? So it's all spreading. Now, now his, the, this woman is healed, 
And then all of a sudden, all these people show up. What's going on? Well, the Sabbath day has ended. The Sabbath begins on Friday at sunset, and then it ends on Saturday evening at sunset. In fact, the law actually says that when you see three stars in the sky, three stars are visible, you know that the Sabbath has come to an end. So all these people are on their little cup phones talking house to house, going, did you hear what happened? Did you hear what happened? Did you hear what happened? And they're not coming to see what's happening. Why? Because if they walk too far, they're under the bonds of the law, and they're going to be working, they're going to break the Sabbath, so all they can do is talk. And so it's going everywhere. They've heard about all this. Now, probably at the outskirts, Jesus turned a woman uh, from an elephant to a person or something like that. You know how that goes when, you know, when, when the word's going out a long distance. But now it's over and the people are looking and they're like, there's the third star, let's go. They all come to the house and the, and the verb tense there means that they were pressing in so much that there was no room and they were pressing in on the house. You couldn't get in and you couldn't get out. All the sick folks, all the demon-possessed folks were coming from everywhere to be touched by Jesus. Now, here's what you and I might think of doing. Look, it's been a long day. Y'all going to have to hit me tomorrow. Okay? All right, come back tomorrow. Come another time. Jesus might, you might think, well, listen, are you good enough to come and be touched by me? Uh, listen, I know what you've been doing. You shouldn't come to me. Or, or who are you? Are you one of my disciples or not one of my disciples? The Bible doesn't say any of that. What does the Bible say? He says, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, verse 34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. Now, what you have got to understand is the word, this is why we studied the word many, there in the Greek language is used as a Hebraic sense, which means that he healed pretty much everybody that he got his hands on. Everybody that got his hands on. They just came. And they came in faith, and they said, Jesus, I need your compassion. And Jesus doesn't turn them away. He just says, come. And they come. And out of his great compassion, out of the depth of his compassion, wherever they are, whatever their problem, whatever their ailment, Jesus reaches out his hand, he touches them, and he extends his mercy and his grace to them. Now, here's the deal. That was my first problem I had to address. Here's the second problem I had to address. You ready for it? Here it is. Brother Mike, that makes a great story, but let's really talk about reality here. The reality is there are some people here who do have a physical sickness. There are some people here who our marriages are completely destroyed and falling apart, and it is a horrible place to be. There are people in debt. There are people who are losing jobs. There are people in all these incredible difficulties, and here's the truth, and here's what we would say if we were honest. I have called out for his mercy and grace and compassion time and time and time again. So many times that I am tired of asking and I still find myself in the same position that I'm in. So the question is, does he still love us? Is he still sending and extending his hand of grace and mercy and compassion towards us? Or is he withholding that with us? The truth of the matter is that Jesus in his sovereign will and knowledge does not heal every single one of our physical ailments. Instantaneously here, he does not at the moment we ask him to heal our marriage, instantly put it all back together again. We know that this is the truth, so what, what do we do with that? We know one day he will, right? 
we do know that he's leading all things and redeeming all things and redeeming this world and bringing it back to his initial purpose that he did in the garden and the original purpose of creating in the beginning. He'll wipe away every teal. Everybody will be healed. There will be no more sickness. Every, every, Every relationship will be restored and will be healed. All those things will be fine, but not yet. Why? The reason is, is because Jesus primarily came not to give us a better life, but to give us life. That was his priority. His priority was not to come first and foremost to heal the physically sick or the emotionally sick, but first and foremost, those would happen, but first and foremost, he came for the spiritually sick. Now, is that evidenced in the word of God? I believe Jesus' focus of his compassion to heal us spiritually and to forgive us of our sins is seen within the text of Scripture and it's evidenced in two ways. First of all, the focus is evidenced by his silencing of the demons. Now, notice the very last part, the last sentence of verse 34. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. All right? Now, this is confusing when you first read it. Okay, here's Jesus. Jesus knows that in order for them to be right with God, what do they have to do? They have to know who he is. The faith has to be placed in him. He's shown up because it's through him and him alone that we can come to faith in the Father and have that relationship restored. Y'all, y'all with me? You guys write that? Now, though, Jesus, he's coming to be known, but now he's turning around and the demons are basically giving him free publicity, right? He's healing them out and he goes, you holy one of God, you Messiah. And he's sitting there going, Zip it. Stop. Stop. All right, he, he's, he, he won't let him speak. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus doing this? I think there's at least two reasons. There's more, but only two that I'm going to share with you. The first one is a practical reason. Here's the practical reason. If these demons keep calling him the Messiah, remember what the Jews believed. They believed that the, the Messiah was going to be this messianic-type king that comes back and crushes the Roman government. Well, guess what? The Romans understand how they believe their Messiah. They, 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 you, they're there one day when they go, oh, yeah, well, one day the Messiah is going to come and they're going to squash you, right? So they know they're looking for this Messiah. Who is he? We're going to squash him when he comes. So they keep him quiet so that Jesus can continue to do his earthly ministry. His time has not come yet, the scriptures say. But there's not only a practical reason. The Bible says there's a soteriological reason. <laughs> You're like, okay, what does that mean? All right, soteriological. There's a, there's a salvation reason. Well, why didn't you say that? Because some of you are learning, and this is how we learn. So theological, it deals with salvation, and that's why he's doing this particular issue. So what's happening? Remember how Jesus is viewed in the Old Testament. Much of the writings of the coming Messiah is not as his conquering king completely and fully, but oftentimes he's mentioned as what? A suffering servant. Why does he have to suffer? Why does he have to serve? Why is he coming in this way? And when we read through the scriptures, he's pictured as being restrained, like a broken reed or a bent reed, restrained and humbled. Jesus intentionally hid his authority and his power many times because he knew the, the hearts of men. Jesus knew that if he were to come and they were to sit there and say, hey, the Messiah, look, here's the Messiah, and what the Messiah does in his main purpose is to heal every element to you, then everybody would come to Jesus. Well, what's wrong with that? They come to him for the wrong reason. They come to him for a better life rather than eternal life. 
And Jesus understood if they could not see him and accept him as a suffering service who would die for their sins, then they could never be saved because they would never see their ultimate need. And we must see that ultimate need to be saved. And folks, let me just share this with you just very quickly before I move on to the second focused evidence. Let me just share this with you. That is why you and I must get the gospel right. That's why when you're sharing with your friends and family, many of the times that they are suffering and they are going through difficulties, and it is a wonderful time for you to come alongside and to share the gospel with them. But the gospel is not, you're, you're hurting, you, you have a physical ailment, what you need is Jesus. Jesus will fix it. Jesus will make it better. Everybody will come to Jesus with that. If I went out and told everybody and they actually believed me, Jesus will eliminate all of your debt your physical debt, your financial debt, if you just come to Jesus, I could probably get quite a few people to come and sign and become a member and join and even serve in this local church. But what's going to happen when that, that debt doesn't go away immediately or even in a long period of time? What are they going to do? Jesus doesn't work. What's the problem? Came for the wrong reason, man. We got to get the gospel right. Look, There are those times in life when people are suffering around them and God uses that to get their attention, but to show what? Their greater need. That's what he was doing with the healing, with all the physical healing. He was showing them, listen, you've got a need, but you've got a greater need, and I've got the power not only to heal you physically, but to be able to heal your greatest need to heal you spiritually. So we see that that truth and his focus is evidenced in the silencing of of, uh, the demons, but also the focus is evidenced by his leaving Capernaum. Look at verse 35. And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Everybody is looking for you. Can I just tell you this? Crowds are not always a demonstration of God, true, authentic uh, work of God. Do you guys get that? Just because there's a big crowd doesn't mean that God is completely in it. You can draw a crowd. But the truth of the matter is, notice what happens here. You would think everybody is looking for you. At this point, we expect Jesus to go, all right, I'm a rock star. It's time to step up. It's time for me to come into my own. But what does Jesus say? Notice the very next verse. He says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. What is he preaching? He's preaching, repent and believe the gospel. He says, I'm freeing myself up from all of this because I don't want people to ultimately think I am here to make their life better. Here physically, temporally, I am here to restore them, to forgive them, and to restore them into a right relationship with God for all eternity. That's why I'm here. And he moves on. Let me tell you something that I believe more than anything. I believe absolutely that God cares about you in where you are 
and your hurt and your difficulty, even if you don't think anybody else does, Jesus Christ sees it. And here's what I believe. If you will call out to him, he will reach down in his mercy and his grace and his compassion to you where you are. It may not be demonstrated in the way that you want it. It may not be an absolutely uh, you being relieved and, 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 and re- relieved from that burden all at one moment and you get out of that difficulty of life. But here's what I do know. If he doesn't take you out of it, he will get in it with you and he will sustain you through it. He will do it. He can't help to. He's compassionate. It's who he is by his very nature. But what I want you to understand in the midst of this is at the same exact time, he did not come primarily right now to make everything just better now. He wants to be a part of it. He wants to use it in your life to make you more like him. But right now, he came to heal you spiritually to make you right. And I just wonder, as I was going through this, I just wonder, is there anyone here who, who, when you came to Christ, you came to Christ because you were trying to get something. You were trying to get a healing. You were trying to get, uh, because your marriage was a wreck. Listen, this is what I'm telling you. I'm glad that God used that to get you here, but you can't get there that way. The only way that you can come to Jesus is to sit there and say, Jesus, I know that all of my life is a mess. I know my marriage is a mess. I know all these are a marriage. But the truth of the matter is, I understand my greatest problem, infinitely worse problem, is I am a sinner against you. I have rebelled against you, and the wrath of God is weighing on me. You say, well, where's the compassion there? Where do we see his compassion? We see the compassion on the coming cross. Compassion is not merely what we say or merely what we feel. Compassion is demonstrated most clearly in what we do. And he demonstrated his ultimate compassion on you while we were yet sinners. He died for us. If you'd repent and believe, you too would be saved. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we thank you.